Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Inside Business and Technology. I'm Kieran Hancock and on this week's show I'll be discussing the future of 2FM with my colleague Laura Slattery. Our economics writers Chris Johns and Owen Burke-Kennedy will be taking us through the latest exchequer returns and their implications for October's budget. And Barry O'Halloran will be updating us on the attempts being made by Cork businessman Michael O'Flynn to salvage his property company. But we'll start first of all with 2FM. Latest listenership figures show that its listened yesterday market share has declined to 10% from 11% previously. Star presenter Ryan Tuberty has seen the ratings on his morning show slip again and it's no longer the most listened to show on the RTE-controlled youth station. Joining me now to discuss these issues is Laura Slattery who writes about all things media for the Irish Times. Laura, welcome to the studio. Take us through the latest JNLR figures and what they've told us about 2FM. Um, yes, the latest Jane and Laura figures, they weren't uh, totally encouraging for 2FM, which has been under um, new management for about a year. Uh, Dan Healy came in uh, last year to sort of turn around the station. And, um, you know, he, he came from the independent sector. He came from the independent sector. He was, uh, you know, known for his uh, kind of commercial. Uh, uh, yes. And um, so that was very much a, state, a statement of, of intent on the part of RTD. They want 2FM to go back to its glory days when rather than being subsidised by um, the licence fee, it actually um, creates a surplus for RTE. The commercial revenues from it actually help fund um, other, other services within RTE. But it's been some years since uh, that was the case and it's kind of a now or never situation for 2FM. So uh, Dan, as I said, came in last year but uh, in terms of the changes he made to the station, they really only came into effect in uh, February and March of this year when um, a number of presenters were either axed or moved to the weekends and um, some new faces came in Mm. and they included um, the former Westlife singer Nicky Byrne who um, is now on at uh, about 11am to, to uh, uh, 2pm. It's Nikki uh, and Jenny, isn't it? Nikki and Jenny, yeah. Jenny Green is his co-host. Mm-hmm. Um, she, it's officially called, I think, the Nikki Burns Show with Nikki and Jenny. And um, they actually um, seem to be doing okay. It's kind of hard to know with the figures because um, because... The figures, although they come out every quarter, they're based on sur- a survey that took yeah. over. Well, let, let's just talk some year. hard numbers. I mean, what yeah. kind of listenership are they getting? So they How does have, that compare with Ryan Tuberty? Yeah, um, they are actually officially now the most listened to show on 2FM. They have 145,000 listeners. And Ryan Tuberty is now just a little bit behind that with 144,000 in the 9 to 11 a.m. slot. So there are clearly some people yeah. who are deliberately tuning in to Nikki and Jenny. Who aren't listening yeah. to Ryan Tuberty? They're not just spillover listeners. Yeah. They're people who are actually turning the dial, if you like, at that um, time. It, it could, that, that, seem, that seems to be the case, or maybe it's the case that you know our, our after our after Ray Darcy's show finishes up at noon uh, on Today FM, that they're switching in at that point, or mm. maybe Nicky Byrne just has his own fan base, or maybe it, it's the legacy from. Uh, Larry Gogan was in a, in part of that slot um, before the spring. Uh, sure. And how would Tuberty's figures compare with, let's say, Jerry Ryan? He's filling that slot yeah. that Jerry Ryan had and, and 2FM was in its pomp when Jerry well, Ryan was Well, this is really the, the heart, I suppose, the heart of the problem, I would say. Well, it's kind of symbolic of the problem rather than being sort of, you know, totally responsible for 2FM's woes. Uh, the Tuberty show... Um, gets 144,000 listeners now, as I said. Um, you know, Jerry Ryan, in the sort of the final survey periods, he was getting almost 300,000. Wow. So you could say that's, a, you know, a halving of that audience. But 
On the other hand, I think, you know, uh, in my column in the newspaper um, and the media page, uh, I'm trying to be fair to uh, Ryan Tuberty because... Um, I think it's a sort of a sort of a well-established truism now that Jerry Ryan was something of a, a radio one-off, and um, you know it was a different time too, and arguably a less competitive time. So you but know, could it be argued that Tuberty is a square peg in a round hole? It, it it could be. Yeah, I mean, my own view is that he'd fit in better on Radio One. Um, he never really his true audience on 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 two FM hasn't. It, it really started off at about one hundred seventy five thousand listeners, and it's gone down all right. You, you know, he's lost thirty one thousand listeners over the last few years, and I kind of you know it's kind of symbolic, as I said, of the, the woes of two FM, um, and none of the new shows, as a, you know, did seem to be performing, uh, with the exception of the Nicky Burns show. They don't seem to be really doing the job that uh, that Two FM wants wants. And it's a fifteen to thirty four year old age group that yeah. they're targeting. Yeah, why, why, is, aren't, yeah. why aren't they connecting with that age group? Um, I don't know. I think it's. I mean, there is a there is a problem across the industry in in terms of recruiting listeners. Um, that you know, the sort of perception is that it's harder to recruit younger listeners now than it would have been in the past. Um, that said, I mean, Dan Healy would argue that it's too soon to really sort of call the results of um, his the changes that he made earlier this year. And whilst some listeners may have uh, drifted away from 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 2FM and indeed about, you know, 16,000 of them have over the last year, um, the sort of the, the, it, it needs more time to bed in these news changes mm. so that it can maybe build up loyalty with the younger people that it, that it is trying to get. But what's also become clear from the RTE accounts is that 2FM is now subsidised by the licence fee, which wasn't the case some years ago, isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I think it was 2009 when 2FM first fell into the red as such. But it, yeah, it was sort of slightly muddy waters in how the, the, the how, how, how it was being subsidised. But it, it is pretty clear from the annual reports that it would have got a sum of 6.2 million last year. Uh, 5.4 million in 2012 and about 4.3 million in so 2011. So how, how much of every licence fee is going to subsidise 2FM? Well, last year it would have been €4.49 Euro uh, cents from every 160. And do we need a 2FM? Because we have all these wonderful commercial independent radio stations which in Dublin and around the country and national station like Today FM which seems to be catering for a similar audience. Yeah, I mean, well, that's, I mean, all the wonderful <laughs> commercial stations as, as you call them, you know, they, they are asking that very question and they've been asking it for some time now. Um, uh, I think, you know, 2FM needs to do something different, really, to, 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 to distinguish itself. And it does try and do some things like comedy and so on that maybe some of the other stations don't do uh, much of. Um, but it, it's, it seems to be in very much, in the, you know, in terms of playlist in the, in the same zone as some of these other stations. And I just wanted to actually, you know, these are all the stations that are po- more popular than 2FM mm. in just in the Dublin market. Um, Radio 1, obviously, but also News Talk, Today FM, 98 FM, Q102, Spin and um, one of the, the big success stories, FM 104. They're all, they all get more listeners in Dublin and that's a bit of a problem for 2FM, I think. And Radio Nova has been acquiring listeners by the bucket loads. Yeah, um, Nova and uh, Sunshine, I think, as well. Uh, you know, the sort of smaller mm. stations are, 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 you know, they're chipping away at, at some of these other shares. And bear in mind as well that the 
overall, you know, radio advertising market has, has really has really plunged mm. uh, since the, the height of the boom. Sure. Now, 2FM has had a few uh, different plans to change their format and so on over the last number of years. If the, let's call it the Healy plan, if the Healy plan doesn't work, uh, what then? Well, that's the kind of a big question. I mean, um, because um, the RTE Director General, Noel Curran, was was quoted in, in a newspaper earlier this year saying that 2FM has uh, two years to get its act together. Um, and be commercially viable like that mm. is as I said the ambition but he didn't really he didn't really spell out what would happen if that wasn't the case and it's you know the no so far you know uh, the previous minister for communications Pat Rabbit um, you know was was not really keen on saying saying at any point that RTE should cut particular services or close them down or sell them off or any anything like that well there um, used to be a lot of talk some years ago yeah. of 2FM being privatised yeah, what about that? I know. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean that, that those are the two options: privatization or, or or just just shut it down, or you know maybe streamline it into something that, as I said, uh, is a little bit more off the beaten track, a little bit actually less commercial, and is sort of very obviously a kind of a public service uh, music station aimed at a, a part of the market that isn't catered for by commercial players. So these are these are the options. But um, and how long do you think Healy has to turn it around? Well, uh, you know, I think it's maybe I, I think he maybe has another year, but on the other hand, if the next set of figures aren't encouraging, mm. you know, you wouldn't. It's it, it's really hard to know because I suppose they don't want to kill something off before it's been time given time to, to bed in. Um, there are you know there are some new voices um, on on the station which are welcome, I think. Um, but it's just a really tough market for them, and it's probably it, it, it it's probably not acceptable, I'd say, to uh, the new minister Alex White that it, that it He's continues. He's a for, former RT man himself, of course. Yeah, I mean, I imagine. Yeah, I, I imagine. Yeah, he's a radio producer as well, so mm. he 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 must sort of uh, know the business. But it's it just you know it it's really kind of odd, I suppose, to have this station that's uh, in principle supposed to be a commercial a commercial revenue generator for RTE, and yet the opposite is happening with it. There's some sort of something has gone wrong there a little bit, and um, yeah, I would argue that 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 maybe that maybe it needs to be looked at more fundamentally. Okay, we'll see how that plays out. Laura Slattery, thank you for joining us. We'll turn now to Michael O'Flynn's battle to retain control of his property group. Carbon Finance, an affiliate of private equity giant Blackstone, recently moved to place O'Flynn Construction Group into examinership. The matter was back in court this week and here to fill us in on the latest from the dispute is my colleague Barry O'Halloran. Barry, what's happened in court this week? Well, okay. what's been going on is that the O'Flynn Group has basically been putting its case forward. The, the, The crux of its argument is that um, Carbon Finance has moved to place the group in examinership and to appoint receivers to some elements of it was merely designed to allow Carbon Finance and Blackstone to get their hands on the assets. To take control. To take control, and that's all that this was about. They're saying fundamentally that it's an improper use of examinership. Examinership is there to save troubled companies and to give them protection from their creditors, but they're pointing out that Carbon Finance is actually the creditor. Why does it need the court to intervene on its behalf if it wants to restructure its own loans? And Where would this leave Michael O'Flynn if Carbon Finance were to be successful? 
Well, it it would leave the as things stand, the the, the directors and shareholders have purportedly been been ousted by the uh, the events of last week, by the appointment of the receivers and the and subsequently the examiner. So therefore, it would it would in, in effect leave him without a business, if you like, and and that's pretty much, I guess, why uh, he and his brother are, are are now fighting to 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 retake control. And Carbon Finance has claimed that the group's insolvent, isn't that right? It has, and uh, th- this is this is, I think, where the case is is very much going to turn. Carbon Finance are saying, look, it's insolvent on the basis of its balance sheet, and it is also heading for a scenario where it will be insolvent on the basis of cash flows. Now, O'Flynn is disputing this. What they're saying is, actually, we have cash. We heard this morning, in fact, that um, they're say- that they have forty million in cash on hand, and their outstanding liabilities, as things stand, are thirty nine million, if you like. So there's a there's a there's a one million surplus. On top of that, they have a what they're saying is a considerable flow of investment income that can be used to service the debt and in fact has been used to service the debt over the last four years while it was under well the debt belonged to NAMA. So they're saying that in fact uh, the 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 contention that they're insolvent is 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 wrong and it's based on an erroneous um interpretation of their loan agreements and they are also saying that that erroneous interpretation is is deliberate and designed to trigger a default in order to allow Blackstone and Carbon to move in. And there are some personal loans at play here as well, about 16 million euros, is that right? Six, 16 million euros seems to be the figure, although uh, the, the figure 20 million was bandied around last week. Um, those loans travelled with the, the group. Those loans are to, to Michael and John O'Flynn and, and to a number of other individuals, and they travelled with the group's loans um, from NAMA to Blackstone when Blackstone moved in and took over the loans last May. What Blackstone and Carbon have done is they have demanded immediate repayment of those loans, which O'Flynn is also saying were being serviced and are being kept up to date. And it's on foot of their failure to meet that, imme- that demand for immediate repayment that Blackstone and Carbon actually appointed the receivers, and that that's what gave them control of the the sort of the, the key holding entity in the O'Flynn Empire, which is based in the British Virgin Islands, and it's through that that they then ousted the existing shareholders and and are purported to oust the existing shareholders and directors. Yeah, Barry, I think it's fair to say that when Michael O'Flynn's loans um, left NAMA, and it was about one point eight billion euro worth of loans. I don't think we were ever told how much uh, was paid for those, but it was assumed that it was uh, in or around the par value. But No, uh, the, the, the Blackstone paid 1.1 billion. That was the figure that was quoted at the time okay. of the transfer. And that figure was confirmed both, I think, in their petition to the High Court last week and subsequently... Was that what NAMA had paid? Um no, we, we know that NAMA did pay a discount, but we don't know what that we, we don't know what that discount was. Okay. But I think it's fair to say when the loans were moved out of NAMA, everybody thought he was in the clear and he was back in control of his own destiny. Yeah, absolutely. And now here we have a situation where a Blackstone affiliate is trying to wrestle control of the business away from it. How did this rift happen? And it's happened very quickly. Well, it this is it. The rift, on the one hand, appears to be around the interpretation of the loan agreements, which are long and complicated, of 200 clauses and are probably you know, too detailed to unravel here. But the rift happened quite quickly. 
um, it seems that Blackstone were interpreting the various clauses of the loan agreements in one way and the O'Flynn's were saying, no, we've actually, uh, we, we've actually been doing it this way with NAMA and you're obliged to, con- to continue to do that. You know, we can negotiate a change to these terms and conditions if you want, but uh, without doing that, you're obliged to stick with them. And that's, that's where the rift appeared. And it is that rift, essentially, that the, the, that the O'Flynn group is saying is, is, is being used as a, as a way of triggering its default and, and allowing, uh, opening the door to, to Blackstone to come in. Okay, Chris, Chris Johns, uh, there's been enormous activity in commercial property in Ireland and a lot of asset buying over the last um, year or 18 months by international groups, particularly Blackstone. I mean, they're, they're the biggest owner of Aircom. Um, they have the Burlington Hotel in Dublin, they're various other assets as well. NAM is now cranking up its activities in Ireland to sell, um, to sell assets and capture some of this overseas appetite for assets here. We've seen hotels, retail, property sites uh, changing hands for big numbers. In your opinion, is there enough demand to sustain this? And is this economic recovery that everybody's talking about, is it real? That's, that's two questions. In, in commercial property terms, the, clearly the demand is there right now. Mm. It arrived very quickly and very, very suddenly. Um, and anything could happen for it to dissipate. By that, I mean, if anything were to happen overseas with respect to the euro area blowing up again, um, the euro area going into recession, something happening in the UK. It won't be because of anything that we do that would cause it to, for, for us to become um, not be flavour of the month again, because the demand is is really there. I've seen. But well, that's a demand for assets. Is there mm. actually a demand? A lot of these sites are only partially developed. Some are undeveloped. Yes. Nama sitting on a lot of brownfield sites around the docklands and so on. Is there actual demand there for? commercial property um, of a type yes I think that that in Dublin actually there are shortages you know Mm. emerging in certain types of office space Um, and I do think that you will see upward pressure on rents um, provided the answer to your second question continues along the right way which is 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 the recovery real and with each data point that we're getting the answer is becoming firmer it it was a very tentative yes a couple of months ago but it's becoming a firmer positive answer Mm. to that question now the recovery if anything, I suspect is slightly stronger than most commentators are, are, are saying. We had the, the very conservative central bank up its forecasts for this year um, last week. It didn't really touch next year. I suspect that next year, um, one very prominent economist put it to me the other day that he thinks next year could be a 4% year for, for wow. overall GDP growth, which nobody has in their numbers yet. But that, if you like, is the whisper number that's, that's out there at the moment. And if that's right, then I think that's the backing, that's the underpinning for this interest in commercial property, because if obviously one requires the other, you know, for commercial property to continue um, in the way that it has done, for the demand to be there, the economy needs to be in good shape. And Contrary, perhaps, to a lot of the cynics and a lot of the sceptics, um, you know, the recovery does seem to be broadening out, does seem to be getting better. And each data point, the Exchequer returns yesterday, for example, is suggesting just a wee bit more strength than we previously thought. So, it's, so it, it is actually all good news. Yeah, and has NAMA timed it well in terms of selling its Irish assets? It's focused pretty much to date on Britain and elsewhere. Yeah, it, it looks as if it, it's, it's been lucky. Um, maybe maybe it was luck, maybe it was judgment. I, in, in terms of the overall question, how is Nama doing? How how will it have done when, when, when we're looking backwards? It's brief. Well, it wasn't, I don't think, a very demanding one in the first place, which was mm. to, to at least avoid losses. I think it's going to do that with ease. Um, there are lots of arguments about whether it's done a good job. We've heard some of them um, just there in, in the context of a specific deal. More generally, there's the speed with which it's been disposing of its assets. It could clearly get rid of most of its assets now. 
if it wanted to. I suspect the reason why staff are leaving NAMA at the rate that they are is because they're reaching that conclusion themselves as well, that NAMA, sure. only a rump will be left quite quickly. And I think the best thing for NAMA to do now is, is to exit as, as fast as it possibly can. That's what I would do. Okay, let's take those exchequer returns. It's been a bumper first seven months for the government. I think tax, tax revenues up uh, 548 million euro above target, uh, lower capital expenditure and debt interest savings have offset overruns in health and uh, social protection. And overall, the government looks as if it could easily beat the 4.8% deficit target for this year, um, helped by recent upward revisions to GDP. What were the key takeaways for you? It's looking good. Um, you do need to realise that um, tax revenues in particular are incredibly lumpy. They're not smooth. So you couldn't just simply double the first half-year mm. numbers and, and reach a, con uh, a conclusion. That would be the wrong thing to do. An awful lot of receipts actually come in the second half of the year, and in particular the last quarter. So there are lots of caveats. There always are with these sorts of numbers, but it's looking good. The, the numbers are coming on the positive side of what the Department of Finance forecast at the last budget. Um, that's what all these positive numbers mean. Um, it is consistent with this thing I was talking about earlier on, which is the, the growth is coming in better than expected. And the VAT numbers in particular yeah. are suggestive that the consumer is feeling a wee bit more positive about life than it was. And that's because there are more people in work than, we, than perhaps was forecast. And just maybe fee people are feeling a little bit better because we do have a very high personal saving rate in this country. And it's not just to pay down debt. And people are saving because they're nervous. And uh, rightly so, of course, given what's happened in recent times. But if people are getting a wee bit more confident, the wherewithal, the savings, if you like, the cash in the bank is there for people to spend. And just maybe the personal strings are being loosened a bit. One of the problems with, with discussing numbers like this is, of course, you get into what's going to happen in the budget, and, and, and that's a separate discussion. But you mentioned in your, in your intro there that the capital, capital side of the budget was also coming in behind. That's not a good thing. I mean, one of the reasons why we've managed to get uh, some kind of control over public expenditure is actually that most of the cuts have been on the capital side, yeah. the investing in the economy side, rather than the current spending side. And sometimes the debate about fiscal policy is, is, is almost infantile in that we don't actually separate the current and the capital. Mm. You know, and there are lots of political, very obvious reasons why we do that. But the fact that we're not spending nearly enough on public sector infrastructure is a problem that one day will come back to bite us. Yeah, sure. Uh, bring Owen Burke Kennedy in here. Health and social protection, uh, we, both over, we overspent in both those categories in the first uh, seven months. How, how worried should we be about that? And what are the chances of reining it in before the end well, of the year? We're, we're overspending at the moment in health, but underspending in social protection. And that's kind of offsetting the former... So uh, this has been going on for quite a, some time. So um, it remains to be seen what the government are going to do about curtailing their health spend. But overall, um, you know, the figure to focus on, I think, is the exchequer uh, balance number. And that's just under 800, mil 800 million so far. And I know Chris uh, expressed some caveats there about uh, projecting forward. But if we were to do such a crude thing, we, w we would arrive with uh, the government having maybe in excess of a billion more than they thought they might have at the beginning of the year. Now, coupled with the current growth rates, you know, a lot of commentators are suggesting that could even uh, result in them being able to do a neutral budget. Mm. Now, that's not something I don't think they could get away with in terms of Brussels, in terms of the Troika creditors. But it is interesting that the economy is growing to that level where people are, are, are insisting on that. It seems like only a few months ago that we were talking about, you know, would we be 500 million inside the 2 billion adjustment? Now it seems people are talking under a billion. Now it seems people are talking about no adjustment whatsoever. Uh, another of Chris's points about the fact that 
the budgetary adjustment will be done in the absence of the last two months of tax returns makes it a big if. The November on the VAT side, I presume. Yeah. Tax as well. So November, I think, delivers 15% of the annual take, and I think the last quarter is about 30%. So it, it's they're essentially doing their maths on the blind, and that's a big if. And then, of course, you know, whatever happens in Europe is, is, is going to be another big if. And we've got the Ukraine crisis, which looks like it's going from bad to worse, and that could easily lead to a hike in, in oil and gas prices, which could dent consumer demand, you know. Chris, in terms of the exchequer figures, is it a case of underselling and over-delivering for the government? It's curious because what normally happens in budgetary cycle here and in, and in other countries is that the, the politicians, the, the ministers for finance, talk tough in the run-up to the budget about how awful things are and that it's going to be really, you know, we really need to tighten our belts. And then they deliver the positive surprise. That's the dreary routine that we go through every year. We've turned it on its head this year, um, and that's thanks to the politicians responding to these good numbers as they have been emerging, because this isn't the first good number that we've seen. Um, they're, they, they're, they're saying that, you know, yeah, we can, we can do more. So they're actually raising expectations of how much they'll be able to, of our, you know, of our own money they'll be able to give us back. Mm. Um, and I think that that's, that's curious. I'm wondering whether that actually sets us up for um, a bait and switch that something like uh, property taxes or water charges might get some budgetary largesse in that the, the, the positive surprise that nobody's expecting could be something like maybe some amelioration on water charges for next year, maybe because we're all looking at very much higher property taxes in 2016, thanks to the property boom, um, maybe they will be frozen. Something like that could come out. Um, otherwise, this has been a very peculiar uh, budgetary arithmetic period. Um, in terms of overpromising and under-delivering, the Department of Finance has actually gotten it quite right over the last couple of years in terms of their projections. And I think there are lots of reasons. They've gotten better at it, as they've employed more economists, what one might, might assume. But I think the main reason is that the economy has been so flat, has neither been going up very much or down very much, it's been quite easy to predict what tax revenues are likely to be, given that nothing much has changed yeah. from year to year through 2012 and 2013. The surprise this year for the Department of Finance has been the growth rate. Therefore, tax revenues are coming in ahead of their projections. I think they were honest projections. I think they were based on an economy that was not as strong as it is now. And But Michael Newland's still playing his cards close to his chest. I mean, yesterday he said that the budget adjustment would be somewhat less than the $2 billion, um, that was originally planned. Yes. Which is somewhat, coy, isn't it? Somewhat <laughs> could be, you know, a couple of quid. It could be mm. a billion. And, of course, we should remember that the water uh, the water charges are going to bring in a significant That's chunk right. of revenue for That's the budget. Right. And, and there's, you know, there's, there's pluses and minuses all over the place. Mm. Will he continue with the pension levy, for example, if that rolls off? That's a significant source of cash disappearing. Mm. Um, like all levies, income tax originally was a temporary levy many hundreds of years ago. Um, I suspect the pension tax may well not roll off because it, it, it is a significant chunk of change that, that he could well do with. Um, but yeah, you know, he's, he's obviously trying to give himself as much leeway as, as possible. But they have created this unfortunate cycle now of ever-increasing expectations that people are going to get some of their money back. Owen, what's your view? Will the squeezed middle, the so-called squeezed middle, get a bit of a break in this budget? Well, he has pledged to do something for hard-pressed middle-income earners who, I suppose, maybe controversially have, has borne the brunt of a lot of the austerity, maybe not all of it, but um, a lot of it. The backdrop to all these positive headline economic numbers is that real uh, average weekly earnings is still floundering down the bottom. It hasn't increased. And how long this can go on with 
can go on in that way without uh, it going up is 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 of very deep importance to the government politically. They've got two budgets left to to, to kind of try and make this kind of feel good factor emerge in the economy. And at the moment, a lot of the positives are headline numbers, and they're not really impacting desperately on um, you know household budgets. So that's going to be something that the government are going to be looking at very closely in in the coming months. They've got two budgets left, as I said before the next election and that's if they run a full term and uh, so it's, it's going to be an interesting uh, few months to look at. Chris, they've also indicated that they're going to announce uh, something on tax strategy in October um, some, something wider. Have you any sense of what's going on there? No, I, I probably know more than, know more than you um, you know, in terms they're clearly under a lot of pressure internationally from the corporation mm. tax and that's obviously going to be a live issue which may or may not be encompassed in that in that tax strategy. Medium-term fiscal planning is, is is noticeable by its absence here, and so anything that is done with respect to thinking about the medium term rather than the short term, thinking about capital budgeting versus current budgeting, as I mentioned earlier on, would be most welcome. Um, it, it would be an adult way of discussing fiscal policy rather than this this somewhat uh, year-to-year short-term stuff that we do. And just in terms of the recovery, I mean, everybody's talking about Dublin being buzzing again. But what about the rest of the country? What's your sense? Is it starting to spread out? Not really. Um, from what we know, which is very anecdotal, obviously, it is still very, very Dublin-based. Um, and um, that's just the way of the world. Um, it's way, you know, in the UK, recovery started in London, and then they eventually spread out. The recovery in the UK that started some while ago is only just starting to spread out to the regions. It'll be a while before it, before we get a benefit outside Dublin. But for as long as it continues in the way that it is, it will eventually spread. Okay, Barry, just going back to you, in terms of the O'Flynn case, when are we likely to get a definitive judgment? Uh, I think we're looking at early next week. And don't ask me what that's going to be. It would be a very, very brave soul indeed who would predict. And what are the chances of an appeal by the losing side, in your opinion? I would say very strong. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me. Um, That's it for this week. I'd like to thank producer Sinead O'Shea and sound engineer James Davis. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.